So we've mentioned already in this book of 1 Timothy that we are in the pastoral epistles. 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and we, we talked about how these books are about the order of the church, how God has ordained the church to be run. And today we are going to come to a difficult, very difficult passage for our culture. Uh, sadly, this was not actually a difficult sermon for the first 19 and a half centuries of the church. The church had a firm and consistent grasp on the meaning of this passage. However, according to a bibliographical research or reference study done by a pastor named Barb, or Bob Yarbrough of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School found that around 1969, there was a huge flood of articles that started flooding Christian literature about that time. And, and it was really, really consistent that, these, that this literature, that these articles that were coming out went completely against the historical interpretation of this passage and passages like this. And, and if we look at it, it can continue to go towards something we'll mention in a little while called egalitarianism. And it's clear that the decade prior to 1969, if anyone was alive during that decade here, I won't make you raise your hand, but there was a certain movement that happened around that time. Anybody know what it was? The feminist movement. And, and that movement, after a decade of that movement, it infiltrated the church, and it started changing how how people interpreted the Bible. They started, instead of interpreting the Bible the way that it says, they allowed culture to start to interpret the Scripture the way they wanted to see it. And this progressive and liberal theological movement now is called egalitarianism. The word encompasses not only promoting equality, which is certainly biblical. Men and women are equal before God, 100%. However, it started going well beyond that and started pushing sameness and not just equality, that men and women are not just equal, but they're also the same, that you can't be equal without being the same. Certainly the, the, the birth control movement, the abortion movement, all sought to really push that as well, where men should have, this, or women should have the same right to not be pregnant that men have, right? And so we want to be same. And they started really pushing. And they started twisting scriptures like Galatians 3.28 to blur the lines of gender. When, when this scripture, in fact, only means that salvation is offered to all, despite gender or ethnic differences. Although men and women are equal, we are not the same. The Bible instead teaches the concept of something called complementarianism. And this term st stands for teaching that men and women are equal before God. We are both made in the imago Dei, as we see in Genesis 1.27, in the image of God. However, it also understands the teachings of Scripture as a whole as well, that there are gender distinctions between the two genders. We see this from Genesis chapter 2, that there is a difference between male and female, the family distinctions of Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, and as well as church leadership, as we see here in 1 Timothy 2 and 3, all point to distinct gender roles. With that in mind, my prayer today is that our church fellowship at Crosspoint, that we run the church, we order the church the way that God's word has told us we should do it. Our pre-understandings and opinions that we bring to this, our cultural lens, has no bearing on the interpretation of Scripture. We interpret the Scripture based the same way on this Scripture as we do any other Scripture. Whether we're reading John 14, 6, where it says, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. We should take that same interpretive approach to this Scripture. Join me as we read these difficult passages for our culture today in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Starting verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold 
or pearls or costly attire, but, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may you clearly preach through me today. Lord God, may, may you give me courage to speak your word. May there be clarity in the words that I speak. May there be the words that you speak through me. This is not my sermon. This is not my scripture. This is yours. And so God, I just pray that, that you open up our hearts and minds, that you help us to humble ourselves before your word. Sometimes we come to scriptures that just really go against the grain culturally. And we all have grown up in a certain culture. And that culture that we've grown up in America is way different than what the Bible says. We live in a culture that exalts pride, that exalts rugged individualism, that, that exalts, I can do whatever I want to do. I am my own God. That I don't need to listen to anyone else. That we have complete liberty to do whatever we want to do. Lord, that is the culture we grew up in. And we can't help but have that culture sometimes infiltrate our lives and, and sometimes cause us to, to, to try to interpret the Scripture the way we want to interpret it. That makes us feel a little bit better. That, that works a little bit better for us. We like to twist things. and Just like Satan in the garden when he went to Eve, what did he say? Did God really say? And, and how Satan twisted the words of God to Eve as she ate of that fruit. May we not be tempted by Satan to say, did God really say this? But may we believe in the word of God and take it for what it says. Lord, we love you, praise you, and thank you. Amen. So before getting into these verses, I want to clarify a few Greek words we see in this section here. Uh, these two words that we're going to see in this section are clearly man and woman, male and female. Uh, there are words such as anthropos, which we see uh, used in verse 4, where it says that God desires all people to come to a saving knowledge of him. But here we see aner, which means man or men, and we see une, which means woman and women. So keep that in mind as we go through the scripture today. So we're going to see three ways in which we should practice holiness in the church, how we can order the church to be holy. Number one, men are commanded to practice holiness in the church by being men of peace by being men of peace. I'm going to reread verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So here again we see the Greek word for men given here. Then we have a qualifier in every place. And this, this qualifier in every place, the Greek word used for that phrase sometimes is everywhere as well, is four times in Paul's writings. We see them in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 2 Corinthians 2, 14, and 1 Thessalonians 1, 8. And in each time, it refers to the corporate gathering of the body of believers, namely what we're doing right now, uh, gathering at, at a church service, if we're looking. Uh, and this, this would be all church services from, the, from that time till now. And he, so he asserts here male leadership of the service, and you'll see that becomes more apparent in a moment. But Paul, but writing by the power of the Holy Spirit, will make a strong command for male leadership in the church. It must be noted here, though, that the, that the assertion here is, to re, is with a rebuke to these men who were leading the church. These men in Ephesus had a problem. They were allowing their anger and their, their quarreling, their way or the highway, to come into the church service so that there was obvious quarreling among men in the church as they would get up and pray. 
Sometimes that quarreling might have even entered their prayers themselves. And what a tragic rejection of the holiness of God's people. When we are gathered in corporate worship, it should be all about the Lord. And that will be our continual theme throughout this message today. It is all about Him and not about us. It's all about Him. And at a time where these men were supposed to be lifting up prayers and praises and thanks to the Lord, they were instead working on their own vendetta. They wanted to go ahead and get back at whoever they were upset with. They were spewing hatred toward one another. The Sunday service should never be about us. It should be about God. It should not be about our preferences, but we should come ready to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And in clarifying this passage, we see him also mention this, this, this phrase, holy hands, lifting holy hands. We mentioned back in December, we went through the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, 1 through 13. And during that, we talked about the many ways that you can pray, and it's in your handout there. And I've included that so that you can remember that this isn't the only way that you can pray, not just lifting holy hands. It is a way you can pray. We saw the postures of prayer, standing, lifting the hands, sitting, kneeling, looking upward, bowing down, prostrate on the ground, praying silently, crying out. There are so many different postures that we can use in prayer. And we mentioned how we were to pray without ceasing, to pray continually. And so you will have all kinds of postures of prayer if you're praying continually. But given the fact that there are so many postures that you can take in prayer that we see in the Bible, why does Paul focus in on this, this lifting of holy hands? Well, I think the Bible is clear if we look that the hands are a sign of righteousness or unrighteousness. We see in Psalm 24:4 this, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Here we see clean hands paired with a pure heart. We must have a pure heart and be free of bitterness, anger, and rage if we are going to lift up holy hands in prayer. Those who lead the church need to be self-controlled and gentle, not domineering. And they must not be quick to anger, as James 1.20 says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. May we at Crosspoint have godly men who lead with humility and gentleness, who seek peace with one another. Next, we get to our next point. Number two, women are commanded to practice holiness in the church by being women of purity. Women of purity. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 again. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. I think it's important to note that there are these two points that we see here for one with anger and quarreling, the other one with, with purity, and I think that both genders can struggle with those. So make sure that you also look at yourself because there are some guys that really struggle with their appearance and how they look, and they, they're, they're worried about themselves. But I think we could probably agree that, that women may struggle with that more, men may struggle with anger more, but that's not just exclusive to both genders. So make sure that you look at yourself in all this as well. Don't think, oh, well, this is just for the women, so I don't need to listen, because there are some men that struggle with this too as well. So I think as we get into this, I think it'd be really helpful to address the negative commands of this first, and then we'll get to the positive. So our negative commands, women are, to, are not to adorn themselves with braided hair, Gold, pearls, or costly attire. Well, this Greek word for adorn here means just as much demeanor as attire. Uh, we'll see the replacement for these negative commands are not just the way a woman dresses or looks. It's how a godly woman should behave as well. And some, some of you may be hearing this verse and wondering if you need to go home and change. Or you need to go home, maybe, or maybe you're reaching out trying to take some jewelry off. Before we get there, let's go ahead and look at the context. Uh, we'll, we'll, look, we'll look at the context in a second. But, but I want you to see that this is not just a, a one-and-done passage. So let's look at first, in first Peter 3, 3-4. through four. This was an issue in the church across the board. 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning, adorning be a, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is, which, in, sight is God, which, which in God's sight is very precious. So the consistency of these two passages are, are really amazing, incredible. Uh, you know, Peter and Paul writing these at separate times almost identically, obviously because they're writing in the power of the Holy Spirit. The, God's writing these words. Well, so what we're seeing is there was a problem with immodesty in the church, in the early church. S.M. Ba has done a lot of research in, uh, of the first century in Ephesus in particularly. And, and as he did this research, he looked at Roman coins, he looked at different paintings, different things like that, and he saw that there were extravagant dresses that people would wear. Some of these dresses may even be in the upwards of 7,000 denarii, which was like 7,000 days wages. Could you imagine wearing something that would take you 7,000 days to pay for? Uh, some of these people were very affluent, and they would have these elaborate hairstyles. Even in their hair, they would have gold and pearls and gems and these elaborate hairstyles. And so there were two big problems in this church, and in other churches we see Peter mention as well. Uh, the first was women were, were seeking to show off their wealth and influence, and affluence. They, they wanted to show, hey, I'm better than you. I've got more than you. And coming from that culture, it would mean, hey, God's blessing me more because I'm more holy. That was kind of this thing sometimes with that, that Judaism idea of, of if you were wealthy, that meant that you, were, that you were more blessed by God. That idea that is false theology, as we see, Jesus obviously was poor. He didn't have a house. I'm, I'm pretty sure he was more holy than all of us. And so we see that that's, that's a false teaching, but it kind of infiltrated the church as well. And so these, these women were like, hey, you know, we're, we're just more holy. I'm going to show it when I come to church. I'm going to make it about me. Number two, women were enticing men with these hairstyles. I know for us, we don't really think about that, but, but, but at that time, it was, it was actually a sign of prostitution. A lot of prostitutes would have these elaborate hairstyles, and they would use that as a sensual kind of thing at that time. So they were causing their brothers in Christ to stumble. Ba states this, Today, it is the equivalent of warning Christians away from imitation of styles set by promiscuous pop singers and actresses. So what he was saying is, don't look like the world. Don't dress like the world. Don't try to bring attention to yourself. Don't make it all about you. Dress modestly. Men shouldn't be noticing you. You know, uh, other women shouldn't be envying you because of the way that you dress, because you're making it about yourself there. They were spending more time and thought on how they appeared to others than on how they were to worship their Savior. And that's a good question for us today. Certainly in our culture, Women do struggle with this more often than men, but it can be a struggle for both genders. And I want you to address this question here. Do you spend more time Sunday mornings before you come to church on beautifying your external being, your external self, or preparing your eternal being or your soul for worship? I want you to let that just sit for a moment. Do you spend more time on how other people are going to see you when you come to church, or are you thinking about more about how can you prepare your heart to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And that's a big issue for some of us. It's a big issue. Sometimes we spend an hour or two hours preparing for church, preparing our external self, but we're not spending hardly five minutes in prayer preparing our internal self or preparing our soul. And let that just sit there, and I pray that that convicts us to make sure that we are preparing ourselves to worship, to visit the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that king is not like an earthly king that cares about how you look on the, ex the external. He's not the kind of king that is superficial and wants you to be dressing in your three-piece, whatever, you know, with your bow tie and coming 110%. And there, he's the king that's looking into your heart. He's looking into your soul. Are you, you know, are you pure? Do you have clean hands and a pure heart? 
So we need to deal with that before we come. I know that's a difficult question, and as we address this, we must understand these verses are not, pro, are not prohibitions for the common braiding of hair and the reasonable use of jewelry. Some of you just sighed a, a really big sigh of relief that I wasn't going to make all the women put their jewelry in the corner, or all the men even put their jewelry in the corner, that we all had to put our stuff up. But my, heart warning, my, my heartfelt warning to you is this, if, if that sigh of relief was because of vanity and not because of Christian liberty, I pray that you repent, that you take a moment to, to reflect on that. But others might be bothered that I didn't go far enough with a passage. Pastor, you know, you're a literalist. You take the scripture like it says, and so this, is, this looks like they can't wear this. Like, where are you coming up with that? And I would say never let a pastor or anyone culturally explain away a scripture. That, that, that's that's a, a liberal theology. When you can take it, well, in the culture, women did this, or they were this, or they were that. They weren't smart, or they weren't... No, there were always smart women. Lydia actually was a very wealthy, affluent woman. A house church was was planted in her church that Paul planted there. She had a women's Bible study, and he ends up using her house to plant a church in Philippi. No, women have been smart throughout the ages. There were definitely oppression of women. There always has been oppression of women in different areas. Absolutely. But it wasn't that they weren't smart. But we, we see people use scriptures and try to culturally explain away scriptures they don't like. They don't culturally explain away the ones they do like, but they culturally explain away the, way the ones that they don't. And so what you should say is, Pastor, give me some scripture. That's what anytime somebody says something like, yes, it says this, but, but this is the meaning of that passage, I better be using other scriptures to make that, to bring that up to your attention. So let's look at these. Proverbs 31, 22. This is the Proverbs 31 woman, the epitome of femininity. This is the, 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 the woman every, every woman wants to aspire to. And it says this, she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. And so here we see purple linen was royalty. It was a sign of royalty. It was a sign of affluence. It was a sign of this. And here this Proverbs 31 woman is dressing well. It's not that she had to wear rags, that she was actually, she was dressed well. We also see, I'm not going to go through all these up on the here, but jewelry is positively described in verses, and they're in your handout. Proverbs 25, 12, Genesis 24, 53, Isaiah 61, 10, Luke 15, 22, and Revelation 21, 2. And we see it, we see it even more clearly than how God adorns his people with jewelry in Ezekiel 16, 11 through 13. And finally, if we look at both the, 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 the thing that we read in Peter and then also here, there's no prescriptive hairstyle given in replacement of that. It's not like, you know, we said, oh, well, your hair has to be long and straight, can't be braided. Your hair has to be, so, so God doesn't give a prescriptive thing. So we see that this isn't a prescriptive. You can't, it, it's, it's more of a contextual thing here. The heart is a matter of modesty, purity, and godliness, which we'll go through in a moment. In conclusion to this, though, I don't want to, to let go of the gas completely because there are a lot of women who do dress in immodest ways that are making much of themselves and not much of Christ, who are causing their brothers to stumble in our society, and this is a big issue. There are women who use the way that they dress, the way that they do their hair, the way that they wear jewelry in order to attract attention to themselves. And so I don't want us to, to, take, to make a law where there is no law, but also we want to be wise, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, may we all walk in purity. And even we see this in the modern church movement today, too, with pastors that wear things that are super tight. You can see every single ab. Now, I don't have them, so you don't have to worry about that. But there are guys that wear shirts that you're like, wow, how can he even breathe? I mean, he's probably going to get pneumonia because he's not going to be able to open his lungs enough, or their, their jeans are a little tighter. I'm just saying there's, there's some things out there. You're welcome, church, that I don't wear them. 
Um, but, but, you know, there are some guys, uh, I don't have the physique to pull it off, but there's some guys that do have the physique to pull it off, and they do make it about themselves and not about the Lord. Looking back at our verses, and uh, now that you all have horrible mental images, um, in, in verses 9 through 10, we see that women are to adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty, and self-control. They should be adorned with what is proper for women who profess godliness, which is good works. Here we see a result of a pure and clean heart before God. It is one of respect for others by dressing with modesty. It's one of self-control and godliness. And it's one that has faith with deeds, as James talks about much in James chapter 2. A woman who leads a godly life and does good works for Christ is adorned with much more beauty than someone who just focuses on the external. As the writer, again, in this Proverbs 31 woman, I love the ending of this section. Proverbs 31.30 says this, Charm is deceitful. And beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Ladies, may you practice holiness by being women of purity. And finally, we see that women are commanded to practice holiness in the church by being women of prudence. Women of prudence. I'm going to read verse 11 here. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Before we get into the prohibitions that Paul is going to throw out here in these scriptures, I want us to focus on this first section. Let a woman learn. This is a huge statement in this time. Let a woman learn. If we look back at Judaism, first century Judaism, women were allowed in the synagogue, but rabbis did not teach women. That's why it was so crazy that Jesus was sitting and had women at his feet listening to him preach and teach, that he allowed women in his inner circle, that he would go to their houses as well and, and spend time teaching them. Most rabbis refused to teach women and likened it to throwing pearls to swine. Yet Paul's example, Paul following Christ's example and direction, commanded that women be taught theology, they be a part of the church, an equal part of the church, able to come to the fellowship, they were to be fed the word of God. So Paul then moves, to, moves forward to command that these women also were to learn quietly with all submissiveness. This refers to having a peaceful and gentle and humble spirit. We see this word quiet that's going to be stated again in verse 12, and it's clarified in 1 Corinthians 14, where we have a difficult verse in 1 Corinthians 14, 34. The women should keep silent, and the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as, as the law also says. Just let that sit. That's a tough one. Before exposing this idea further, though, we need to read verse 12 as well. Verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So Paul, again, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I've seen a lot of liberal theologians say, well, Paul had it out for women. He didn't like women. It's like, do we believe this is the inerrant word of God, or do we believe this is Paul's word? And that, that's a huge theological discussion. And if you believe this is Paul's word, well, then how do you believe any of the Scripture is true? Who is Jesus? Who is God? What, what is this? This, is, this isn't the inerrant word of God. What is your faith in yourself? And, and your interpretation, or is it in the Lord and what he says? So we have to say this is God's word, and we have to accept it. And he prohibits a woman from teaching or from exercising authority over a man. So what do these two things actually mean? Let's just get into the, the nitty-gritty here. Number one, teaching. This does not mean that women cannot teach. Women, we see women teaching other women in Titus chapter 2. They're actually commanded to do so. Titus 2, 3 through 5 charges women to teach other women and to mentor one another. Timothy himself is a man who learned from who? His mama and his grandmama. We actually see that in 2 Timothy 1, 5, 3, 14 through 15. The scriptures are clear that women are to teach one another and their children and to raise their children in the fear and admission of the Lord. 
The Greek word here for teach is didasko. And it's where we get the word in English, didactic. If you're taking didactic classes, it's a systematic class that you're taking. It's systematic teaching of the Word of God, like I'm doing right now. We're going verse by verse, and I'm proclaiming that to you. This is what is being explicitly prohibited by Paul in the church. And it has explicitly been being done in churches throughout our nation and throughout our world. And Paul and God himself is super clear that that is a sin. It is not allowed. And I know that is very, very hard for people to hear today, but it is very true. It's what God's Word says. It also says that, you know, that women can also, but they can teach women and other, and other children. We can see that absolutely. But also here we could say that women are not permitted to teach when men are present in the church in a didactic way. Number two, we're going to go through this a little bit more in a moment, but number two, authority. Paul then prohibits women from assuming positions of authority over men in the church. There are many practical implications, and they've been debated in the churches, but what we really need to focus in on, they're not permitted to have authoritative positions such as elders and deacons, which we'll mention in the coming weeks. Leaders of the church are, by God's command, to be men. And we're going to see why that is. But sadly, many modern pastors have been influenced by this feminist movement and our culture, and they're fearful. And so they, and I realize I've prayed a ton before I preached. This is a tough sermon to preach. And I see, I see why they're fearful. I see that. But I don't have authority given to me to give to somebody else, unless it's in the Bible. And I see so, so many pastors that will allow a woman to preach in their church because they're preaching under their authority, is what they'll say. They'll allow them to teach this class with men present because they're teaching under the authority of the elder or the pastor. My friends, there's nowhere in Scripture where that's ever mentioned. That is a man-made doctrine, and, and frankly, it's false. It's not a true teaching. If they can't give you a Scripture, don't believe it. There needs to be a Scripture that backs up what they do. My friends, the only authority that I have is the authority given to me by God himself through his word and through his call upon me. And I have no authority and no right to change his commands for what makes me feel a little bit better or makes me feel like I'm a little more culturally sensitive in those areas. Paul then moves on for the reasoning of this prohibition. And this reasoning shows us that this is not a cultural thing. This is not a, oh, we're women, we're this, or Paul was this. No, this goes back to creation. Paul is going to go back to the garden, the very beginning, so it shows this is, this is the way it has to be. This is the way it was supposed to be from here on out. And if we look at 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So there's two reasons that Paul says God requires male leadership of the church. Number one, creation order. Adam was created first, and thus man was to be the head of the family, which extrapolates to being the head of the church as well here. The idea is clearly seen through marriage in Ephesians 5. We see this very clearly. Number two, at the fall, Eve, not Adam, was deceived. Well, most people understand number one pretty well, and in most Bible-believing churches, there's not really a point of contention there. But the second one's pretty difficult, right? That's a tough, a tough word. The second reason's pretty tough because Adam was not deceived, we're told, but Eve was deceived. There are multiple things that fell apart in the Garden of Eden. If we look, the serpent approached who? Eve. Why not Adam? The serpent and Eve herself usurped the husband's authority. He was made first. She was to be his helper. He was to be the leader. She was to be the follower as they both followed God and, re and related to God. And yet, what happens? 
Adam's authority is bypassed, usurped. She makes this decision to eat of the fruit without discussing with Adam. We don't see Adam. What do you think? Not mentioned there at all, right? So we see that she, and then she even leads her husband into sin by offering him a taste of the fruit. Because of this, we see that the created order was completely messed, like, was completely messed up here. We're told the church should be led by males because of this. Now, before we blast Eve here, and a lot of us can be like, oh, wow, man, she really messed up, right? She should have done this, she should have done Those are truth. Like, all those are truths. Eve should have asked her husband. Eve shouldn't have been talking to the serpent without her husband intervening, saying, hey, what do you think about this? Absolutely. But Adam, what's he doing? He's there. He's watching the whole time. It says that he's there in Genesis 3. Her husband who was with her, and I've heard people miss preach that. It's very clear. He is there, and he's passive. He's just standing there. Okay, I know they're usurping my authority. I know I'm supposed to be the leader, but he keeps his mouth shut, and then we're told he's not deceived. So many of us, maybe when you read it in, in, in Genesis, would think, well, maybe he was deceived like she was, and he just went along with it. No, actually, we're told here he was not deceived. He pridefully and willfully disobeyed God. He didn't think the serpent was telling the truth. He was just like, okay, she ate it. I might as well go ahead. I'm going to eat it too. It's a spite thing. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm going to go and just see what happens. And because of this, the entire New Testament blasts Eve, right? We see, oh, it's Eve's fault. No, we never see Eve blamed. It's actually Adam. We actually, so read Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one, what? Man, where's Eve? Eve ate it first. Adam's there like, it's the woman, right? He tried to pass it off, pass the buck. Men do that all the time now too. Oh, this is my wife. She's doing this. She's, no, it's like, no, you're not leading well. That's the problem. Like, if you've got a problem in your marriage, step up, man. It's your job to make things happen. Now, you do it servant leadership. You do it in a kind way. You do it loving. You go find help. You go to counseling if you need to. You go wherever you need to go. But you need to lead in that way. And so God holds Adam responsible. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then Adam gets name dropped in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Eve, all die. No, as in Adam, all die. And also in Christ shall all be made alive. Although men are given a charge to lead, this charge comes with a great responsibility and burden, a heavy burden. We bear the burden of leading the family. We are responsible to lead the family. We bear the burden of leading the church as well, some of us that are called to do that. And regarding the leading of the church, this is certainly a difficult task. I do, what I, I do love what I get to do every Sunday, preaching the word to you all. I, I love it. I have a burning desire to see others fall in love with God's word and love him and take it the way it's written and not with this world worldview that is just so countercultural. I love to watch people gain knowledge and grow in their sanctification. Also love shepherding this wonderful group of people. You all are a blessing to shepherd. I love each one of you all. But with that said, this is a difficult job. I'm sure that there are few, if any of you, who envy what I'm doing right now. This is a great burden in studying the Word of God and preaching the Word of God. It's something that I count as a privilege and I love, yet it comes with a great price and it comes with a responsibility. And given our subject matter today, I can probably assume most if not any of you, would, would trade me positions today for a great sum of money. With all that said, how do we practically play out these verses? What does this look like in the fellowship of believers, in the church, and in particular, 
Crosspoint. What does this look like here? How do we put these difficult scriptures that are so against everything that we have been taught growing up, everything that we see around us, every other thing in society, how do we avoid going off the rails and either legalism or liberalism? How do we stay on the direct path, the narrow way? And I've developed some, some practical points for women serving the church. I hope that this is clarifying and helpful. Number one, women may sing and play instruments unto the Lord. We see this countless times in the scriptures, Old Testament and New. Number two, women may teach and lead prayer with other women and or children in the church and disciple others. I've given you scriptures. We won't go through them all, but I've wanted to give you scriptures. The first one, there are just so many, I didn't put them in there because it would have been too long, but there are scriptures for each one of these points. Number three, women are called to serve or to share the gospel with others. We all have the Great Commission. We're all to be on mission for him. Number four, women may serve in hospitality ministries. Number five, women may serve to aid in the help of widows and orphans in the church. Number six, women may pray and give knowledge in groups of men and women, so as long as not authoritative or didactic in nature. For example, a Bible study, small group, Sunday school growth group. Women don't say, hey, I'm not saying in small group settings and our Bible studies you can't speak up. The Bible is clear that you can. We have much to learn from you. You are a part of the body. This is authoritative, didactic. No, you're not to come in the middle of Bible study. Put your, put your Bible on here and say, well, verse 1 says this, and, this is, and, and exposit the scriptures. Now, that is that part that would be out of bounds. You can do that with other women, though. Absolutely, and I would love to see you do that with other women. I'd love to see you disciple other women and, and your children. You can do that at home. You can do that with your grandchildren. Amen, that would be wonderful to see. And number seven, women may serve in an unlimited number of practical ways in the church, as long as it does not involve authority and teaching over men. So we, we should all be learning from the women of our church. Every one of us should be. They have so much to offer. These verses do not preclude men from learning from women. So don't hear that. I, I've heard for people go way off the rails with that in a lot of legalistic churches where it's like, oh, no, you know, your wife can't teach you nothing. Like, no, no that is, that's, that's garbage. That's not true. I've learned so much from my wife. I've learned so much from my, my mother, grandmother, different people, my sisters. I've learned so much from other women along the way. Women in this church have taught me much as well. These verses are all about church order and authority and the authoritative proclamation of God's word. A any pastor or elder that would be, I don't know another word, but just dumb enough not to ask ladies for advice in their church would be like a man trying to use just half of his body to get a job done. Like that would be ridiculous, right? If I just said, I'm going to just hold this arm up, not going to use this arm, I'm just going to use half my body. You're not going to be effective. The women of the church are part of the body of Christ. We are one body, many parts. And just because certain parts aren't used for certain things does not make them less valuable. We are all equal of value. We may have different roles, but that is not an equality or a value issue. And I pray that you see, as you see that the Bible does not, the, the, I pray that you see that the Bible does not clearly, or it clearly does not say that women are inferior. I actually did a podcast on that. I'd love for you to listen to it not that long ago. I think it was just last month on the Bible does not teach that the women are inferior. I pray that you see God values women. Moving to probably one of the most hard verses, uh, maybe the hardest, I think. I don't think it's most hard, right? It's hardest. One of the hardest verses in Scripture, verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, and love and holiness with self-control. Who, who's read that verse and just skipped it? And said, I, don't, I don't know what that means. I, I, you can be honest. I think I did before. I've done it multiple times. You read that verse and you're just like, what in the world is Paul talking about? Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith 
and love and holiness. I'm praying that, that today you'll have a clear view of this verse. That I, there's tons of different interpretations. I read a ton of commentaries, just making sure I wasn't off. Read through this a lot. And I think there's one in particular that just stands out, that just makes more sense, that's logically, that logically flows. So, so verses 13 and 14, where did we go back to? What chapter in Genesis do we go back to talking about Adam and Eve? Chapter 3. So when we're interpreting the scripture, maybe we should go to chapter 3 of Genesis. Maybe it will help us see it. And Genesis 3.15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As we discussed before, this is the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, the primary gospel, the first time that we see the promise of who? The Messiah, Jesus Christ, absolutely. Who would do what? He would crush the head of? Satan. How, how beautiful is that? Soon as the fall happens, now we knew, God knew before the foundation of the world this was going to happen. It's not like he had this band-aid plan. But we see it proclaimed here for the first time, the Messiah's coming. And who would that Messiah come through? Eventually. Eve, right? So Eve, and you can follow that genealogy all the way down through David. I mean, Rahab's in there. There's all kinds. You can go all the way down, all the way to Joseph and Mary. And what do we see here? And in the scripture, we go, we're going back to Genesis 3 in context. Genesis, you know, if we're looking at first, or 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15, if we kind of open that up, and we, and we span out a little bit, we're like, oh yeah, he's talking about the garden. He's talking about sin. And so if we look at it in context, we can see that we make, we make sense that she is Eve. She will be saved through, ch through, through childbearing. It's not just women are saved by having kids. It's not that you have to have kids to be saved. All those are just garbage interpretations. We know those aren't true by the rest of Scripture, right? But what we see here is she would be saved through childbearing, re referring to the child of promise, the Messiah, right? Who would come and save, take away the sins of the world, and they would save those who would continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, those who showed the fruit of the Spirit, those who were true believers that persevered. And I love that Paul ends this super difficult section of Scripture with the gospel. The fall of mankind gender confusion. Although it appears more blatant than ever, gender confusion's gone way beyond what we could have ever thought. But it's been an issue since the center of the world, right? We had a gender confusion with Adam and Eve with the serpent. Adam, passive, doesn't lead. Eve takes charge. Says, hey, I'll just make this decision myself. The cure for all sin, though, is what? The gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He rose three days later. He's now at the right hand of the Father. If only people repent and place their faith and trust in him, they can be saved. If you haven't done that, I'd love to talk to you about it after the service. As we come to a close, I think there's a really important teaching that we need to remember from this passage. I'm going to put it up here. It says, the church must be focused on Christ alone. The church must be focused on Christ alone. Our temptation is to make the church focused on ourselves. Our temptation is to make the church all about us. A place Maybe for men, it's a place where they dominate. It's a place where they have their way, and they quarrel, and they argue, and they dominate. And I think time would fail us to look at all the alpha male leaders and churches that have imploded or exploded their churches based on their own ego and dominating nature. But this should never be the case in the church. And it really should not be the case for any men, even and not in leadership, that they would be dominating and quarreling like that. Then we saw a warning to for women not to make the place where they were noticed. The church is about Christ, not about them and how people see them and, and how they dress and how they look. 
we should gather with a sole focus of worshiping Christ and magnifying him and not ourselves. And finally, we saw gender roles in the church. Women are in excess prudence, meaning wisdom, and how they act in the church. And there's so many roles that are available for women to fill in the church. And frankly, there's so many roles for men and women to fill in the church. And so often, instead of focusing on what we can do, we focus on what we can't do. Right? But our focus should not be on ourselves. Our focus should not be on what does the church bring to me? What am I able to do in the church? I, you know, this is what I want to do. I feel called. I want to do this. Well, my friends, it's not about you, and it's not about me. The church is about Christ and his glory alone. May we at Crosspoint not be about men and women, not be about ourselves, but be about Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, I thank you.